You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Well, in 2007, Apple CEO Steve Jobs strode onto the stage at the Macworld Conference and Expo, and you perhaps remember this moment, maybe, I don't know, age kind of considered here. There's this clip on YouTube you can pull up, and you can watch Steve Jobs walk onto stage and pull from his pocket this device that, upon introducing it within an hour, changed our lives forever. In the clip, Steve has this device in his pocket, and he pulls, and he announces, and calls it this, labels it a music player, a phone, and an internet device. A music player, a phone, and an internet device. And in those three descriptors blew our collective minds. We know the iPhone wasn't the world's first smartphone, but it certainly was the most intuitive. It was the easiest to use, and so the world gravitated to it. And now we sit in 2023, and who would have guessed, right? We would sit here in this year, and who would have guessed that the average American would pick up that device nearly 300 times a day? 300 times a day, almost 1,500 times a week, the average American picks up this music player, this phone, this internet device. Who could have predicted that out of our 24 hours that were given in a day, that for nearly four of them, we're staring at a four-inch screen oblivious to all that's happening in the world around us. And more than that, and where the research is headed now, and kind of as people process what are the effects of this, and I'm not anti-technology or anything like this, just uh, an interested observer, but the research is headed now, and we're trying to figure out, and there's no conclusive way yet what effect this is having, but no one has really any idea what's being wrought on our minds and in our lives by just endlessly scrolling, bouncing between one image to the next, from one piece of text to the next, being fed data over and over and over again within such a brief amount of time. What damage is this doing? Collectively, owing to this innovation and then a host of other contributing factors, so we don't want to pin it on the iPhone or anything like this, a host of other contributing factors, we are losing our ability to focus. And so this is where the research is headed. This is what the books are being written on now. Can we, as a people, can we focus? presents a massive problem when it comes to engaging the world around us, people around us. We see this as we ride public transportation or even in our own homes. Connectivity is lost. Can we not only focus, but can we be present is the question. Can we be present? Can we think critically, deeply about important topics? Can we observe nature? Can we observe beauty that's all around us? If all of this is true, that we're struggling in these lanes and in this regard, then it's certainly true that we might struggle spiritually as well. That the same inability to focus or think long-term or think deeply about a topic will have spiritual implications as well. And this is certainly true in our relationship with God. Collectively, as we lose our ability to focus, it's incumbent upon us, it's important for us, you and I, together, that we encourage one another, sit, stay, stay a while with God. Gaze upon God, look at God, see God's beauty, and let's stay there. Let's stay there. A.W. Tozer says that what comes to your mind and my mind when we think about God is actually the most important thing about us. 
What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And J.I. Packer in his classic work, Knowing God, wrote this. He said, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold to our allegiance. And this, the Christian has in a way no one else does. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than this? To know God. What higher goal can there be than this? To know God. And getting to know God in this way requires time spent with Him. We would assume that is true, but probably in this moment needs to be said. Getting to know God in this way requires time to be spent with Him. Deep, sustained thought. Considering His work and His ways and His character, who God really is, that's what we're after. That's what we're interested in. And so today in Psalm 16, with the help of Acts 2, we'll see that this God, this God who sustains, secures, this God is worthy of our sustained reflection, that God is worthy of your and my sustained reflection. We gaze at Him, and He's worthy of us looking His way. So in Psalm 16, having already read the text, we want to look at this psalm in several different parts. And I want to break it up like this. If you're a note taker, you can jot these down and tune out. It's great. No, just kidding. But we want to look at the text in four different parts, four different attributes or four different realities or truths about God. And these are truths that David realizes as he pens this psalm and then lives in the activity that kind of undergirds or underlies the words of the psalm as well. But we see in Psalm 16 these four things. That God sustains, number one. We see that God secures, number two. We see that God sovereignly guides, number three. And we see ultimately, number four, that God satisfies. He sustains, He secures, He sovereignly guides, and He satisfies. You've already gotten to spend a couple of weeks, I think, in the Psalms, and so you're well aware of, of kind of what's going on contextually here, but in case you're unaware or just as by way of reminder, Psalms are a collection of biblical poetry through which the authors of the Psalms, and there are various authors, they express prayers and sayings about God. And we'll see, and you've already seen, that the Psalms cover the full range of human emotions. So you'll find in the Psalms dancing, and you'll find joy, and you'll find singing. But you'll also find alongside these things tears and sorrow. You'll find real angst. And alongside the right impulse we have as believers to fight and contend for joy in our lives as followers of Jesus, alongside that right impulse, we ought to be aware and even comforted by the fact that poetry in the Bible reminds us that within the Christian life, there is a category for expressing our deepest longings to God. We're not only shouting at God or talking to God from the mountaintop, we're pleading with Him from the valley. And the Bible gives us context for that, a category for expressing deep longings to God, real angst, fears, worries, frustrations. All of this is included in the Psalms. And we're reminded, too, that in doing so, we're not just left to shout into the void. That God turns His ear and He hears these kinds of prayers also, and He answers them. And so we'll see how this works out in Psalm 16 as God sustains, secures, sovereignly guides, and he satisfies. And we'll see in the passage how these themes are sort of interwoven, right? So we'll watch these, these kind of characteristics of God, how God acts in this text in Psalm 16 as David reflects on God's beauty, his nature. We'll see how these, these characteristics of God kind of function like a needle through thread, 
up and down all through the text as David's coming across these truths and these realities that are so significant for you and I as we sit here this morning. So number one, God sustains, and we'll pair that with two. God sustains and secures. Verse one, look at it with me. David writes, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So we're uncertain here of David's circumstances or what he's going through in life. If you know a bit of David's story, there are a number of sticky situations we could probably think of that he was in maybe when he wrote this, but none that the text reveal. And so we don't know exactly what David's going through as he pens these words in Psalm 16. Instead, we find a simple, ple- a simple plea, a request. Preserve me. Keep me, O God. And the language here resembles that given in Genesis. If you think back to this, as Adam's given responsibility for preserving, protecting, keeping the garden, kind of this picture of what David wants from God as well. In the same way that he was going to protect and keep the garden, God, would you do that for me? Will you be my hedge of protection? Will you take care of, protect, secure my affairs? Be with me, God. Protect me. And you I take refuge. The presence of God is for David a place of refuge. God is the place where David runs. And hear this today. God is the place where David runs. A sort of best kind of escapism. If he's going to go somewhere, if he's going to escape somewhere, it's going to be into the presence of God. When we're often tempted to go everywhere else except into the presence of God for release, David has found in God's safety. He's found in his God's security. God sustains David amid trouble. We see this throughout the Psalms that David has written, throughout the narrative written about David's life. God sustains him through all kinds of trouble. He upholds David. We find through hardship and all manner of difficulty. We level with David and can connect with David. We see that God holds him through things like depression and fear and worry. And yet as God is there with him and for him, And he asked God, preserve me, because it's in you I take refuge. And in this safe place, as David is taking refuge in the presence of God, he recognizes that every good thing, every good thing in his life is something that has been given him by God himself. As he's taking refuge and finding protection and security, he has this realization in the psalm that God has given him every good thing that he has Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. We're reminded in the text as we see David remember that every good gift in his life is given by God. We're reminded that the truly fulfilled man or woman recognizes not only the good things in life that he or she has. It's a good practice and something good that we ought to spend time doing. What good things do I have in life? But the truly fulfilled man or woman pulls that up to a next category. Not only do I have good things, but those good things have at some point down the line been given me. And who is responsible? You might think of the fruit of your own labor, the product of your own hard work, all that you've earned in this life. And yet, it's curious, if you were to trail that up to higher thoughts and ask the deeper question about things that you have in life, how have I been able to obtain all that I have Who or what do I owe for my strong mind, my sharp thinking, for my abilities, my skills? 
my love, my care, my desire to serve other people, where does this all come from? These questions spill over onto more ultimate questions, namely this one. To whom do I owe credit for my entire existence? Who do I owe credit for my existence, my being here? All of this begins and ends with the fact that we're here. We made it to another day. Another week at Seven Mile Road, we woke up this morning, and we're here looking at one another. To whom do we owe credit, honor, glory for this breath that's in our lungs? These are the types of questions David is asking. When I was 16 years old, I was eager to start driving, as everyone is. So I got my permit at 15, got my license at 16, and then went on the hunt for a vehicle. And the non-negotiables for 16-year-old Mike and shopping for a vehicle, the list was pretty small. I pretty much deduced it down to this needs to roll when I press the gas pedal. And by the grace of God, that's exactly what I got. I had a 1990 Jeep, Jeep Cherokee, and it, was, it had, shall we say, character. And so I would press the gas pedal, and it would go most of the time, right? But one of the distinguishing features of my first vehicle was that it lacked both AC and heat. So I grew up in the southwest corner of the state of Georgia, and lacking AC in the southwest corner of the state of Georgia is, shall we say, a problem. And so I would sweat through most summers and end up wherever I was going, a, a mess, right? And uh, kind of the same here sometimes, but I would end up uh, at my destination, uh, uh, just a sopping wet mess, right? And then I would, uh, in the winter times, not especially bad in Georgia, but we had this problem where windows would freeze over. And so in my Jeep, it became sort of a chore to get visibility through my windshield. And I tried all sorts of manual ways of doing this, and then I eventually got on the road, and I would notice in wintertime mornings on the way to school in my vehicle that I could actually see my breath while I was driving, and I couldn't do anything about it. And so I was driving, my breath was going, and sometimes it would fog the window, and so I had this system where I would wipe the window in front of me and drive with the other hand, and I'm trying to make it to school this way. I was saved as a 15-year-old, and so this was a year after, and as I'm driving in this Jeep, wiping the foggy window in front of me, I'm more apt to process things at that point in my walk, like how does all of this fit within what I know is true about God? And so I'm asking these questions even as I'm driving in this Jeep, and I'm like, the Jeep is a situation, we can say, but praise God that I have breath, period that I can see this, maybe, maybe fogging up the road and causing issues and problems from, for me now, but I have it. And this is worth giving praise and honor and glory to God for. And this is how we ought to live our lives, not introspectively inspecting every little minute detail of our lives, but often falling back on this truth, this reality that God gives us not only every good thing we have, but our very existence. David notices a difference between the type of people who give just a head nod to God and those who embrace him as the giver of all good things in life. Read with me verses 3 and 4. He says, as for the saints in the land, this first category of people, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. And then notice in verse 4, this second category of people, the sorrows of those, a second category, who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood well, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So we see here two categories that David notices, two categories of people. The saints are the excellent ones in whom David delights and those who run after other gods, those who bow before 
false idols, those who falsely worship false gods. And David's resolve here is to not chase after the lesser gods, to not become distracted. He'll not even utter the names of the lesser gods, much less entertain their empty promises. What a way to live. I'm not even going to give them the time of day. Rather, he recognizes that God is the one, and this is point two, that God is the one who sustains him. We know this about idols, that they often promise much more than they give in return. The false gods and things that we tend to worship in our world other than God often promise much more than they give in return. And then they often give much more than we, we expected, such that at the end of the day, we feel empty. We feel like we lack and we're without. We hit rock bottom. And this point that David's at in realizing that God is the one who sustains, that God is the one who fills him up, is a moment that we come to over and over and over again in our walks with Christ. They turn our attention, our hearts back to the God who loves us. Verse 5, David turns into this reflection, this sustaining reflection that the Lord is my chosen portion. He is my cup. He says, you hold my lot. And then hear this reflection on his life. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. It's evident here that David considers himself to be among the first group. The saints in the land in whom are all my delight, the ones who give more than a head nod to God. David considers himself within the first group, and he keeps with this sort of Old Testament theme we see of land and inheritance. And David recognizes here that God has blessed him in unimaginable ways. He'll lack nothing spiritually. He'll lack nothing spiritually. God is his portion that resolves spiritual hunger in his cup so that he'll never thirst. We see then this needle through the thread that God sustains, he secures, he satisfies. Here's truth today, that God keeps those whom he loves. He keeps those whom he loves. He upholds them, and he keeps them safe. David, too, recognizes that this reality encompasses all of life, every bit of life. God, he says, holds his lot, his whole life. The portion of breath divvied out to David, the days he wakes up to, the activities he's involved in, this is all portioned out by God. And the lines, the boundaries around his life, the life that he has been given, David says, the lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. If you read David's story, you know everything did not always go well for David. And yet, here's this reflection on his life. The lines, the boundaries, the life I have, the lines have fallen in, in, in pleasant places. David recognizes that God outlines, lays out the parameters for life itself, marking out the very boundaries of existence. And that fact is what makes the fact that he exists good. That fact is what makes the fact that he exists good. Maybe you need to hear that today. Wandering into a place like this, perhaps overlooked Monday through Friday, wherever you spend your days on campus, in the workplace, at home. Perhaps you're just tiptoeing around the idea of church. Don't know what it is about this kind of place that people would be into. What it is about the Bible that causes people to believe it's true. What it is about this man, Jesus, 
that believers talk about so much that piques their curiosity, draws their attention, their affection. Perhaps you're on the outskirts. God is aware. God sees and He knows. If you have questions and like to engage in those conversations, plenty of people here at Seven Mile Road would love to engage in those conversations, and so it's a welcome thing here. In a very real sense, as David's reflecting and pondering on this reality that God sees and He knows all of life, in a very real sense, life should be other than it is. Sin has marred this world in untold ways. Things are broken and not as they ought to be. And yet, in another sense, God has ordained these days and these moments exactly as they should be. So how might we hold those things in tension? That sin has marred this world, and yet God has ordained these moments. Those storms roll in, troubles pile up, sufferings may increase. We are pressed at every turn to realize and to remember, as David did, that God is ever at work, that God is ever at work. So don't hear me say this morning that this will be easy, but let me remind you as a brother in Christ believer that God is faithful, that God is faithful. He will sustain you. He will keep you. He will uphold you moment by moment in weakness from strength to strength, and he'll keep you safe. He'll keep you safe. We see in the text in 7 and 8 that God also, point number three, God sovereignly guides. God sovereignly guides. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and in the night also my heart instructs me. He says, I've set before the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. For a man of David's social stature, there was likely no shortage, shortage of sources anxious to give him advice. People all around him every single day willing to tell him the right way to go, the right thing to do. No shortage of sources of advice. And yet at the end of it all, all the voices considered, David blesses God who gives him counsel. And he begins this pra- or doesn't begin this or realizes this practice of measuring his life, measuring the advice that he's received by the truth that's found in God's word. The Lord is generous with his wise counsel. David stumbles upon this reality. The Lord is generous with his wise counsel. His guidance isn't shut up behind some subscription service. A consultation fee or a paywall, it's freely given over and over. For us, the primary source of God's wisdom remains to be his word. And so for as often as your church leaders encourage you to spend time in God's word and as often as you encourage one another to do so, I say continue. The source of God's wisdom in this life is found in the riches of His Word, which we work through alongside brothers and sisters who share our same love for God and our love for His work and His ways. We believe that this book, this book, has stored up in it the words of life, that it is the stream that is mentioned in Psalm 1 worth planting your tree beside. This past summer was our first in the city, and so we are moving through our second summer here in Boston. And I notice it at this time of year more than any others as filter, our visitors filter through the city. And oftentimes, we had friends in town last week, and we jump on the train to go downtown and kind of show them all the Boston-y things and Freedom Trail and all of this. But as we're on the train, you can kind of pick out a visitor to the city at this point, right? 
They're sort of kind of eager to be on the train and looking around, kind of anticipating, you know, this sort of thing. And the, the, the Boston residents are sort of sitting over in the corner reading a book or just kind of sleeping or whatever it may be, right? There's a difference. But the other difference that we notice is often the eager, maybe train riders who are in the middle of it aren't holding on to anything or just sort of standing flat-footed, aren't they? And everyone knows the train's about to lurch and no one's going to tell them and it's a beautiful scene, right? So the train starts to lurch and the visitors fall back and they kind of catch themselves and then they regain and then you see them at the next stop and they're like, okay, I'm ready. And they grab everything imaginable, right? Like, it's not going to be that bad, calm down, you know. But they grab everything and they sort of widen their base a little bit, widen their feet a little bit. And this is what you do just intuitively now. But this is what we're talking about, getting deep into God's word, is widening our base. It's preparing for that moment where the storm comes or the craziness comes. We're widening our base. We're sinking our roots down deep into God so that we might experience his love, his grace, his mercy in untold ways. And that's what will happen when you put yourself consistently in the way of the truth that's found in his word. We find that the Lord's wise counsel is timeless, and it's timely. The Lord's wise counsel is timeless, and it's timely. And it's important for David for what we see next in the psalm that he lands on this truth and this reality. He says, I bless the Lord, who, in verse 7, who gives me counsel, and in the night also my heart instructs me. And so the fact that David sends his roots down deep, he widens his base and prepares himself, we find it maybe comforting, even in verse 7 here, that David's not unfamiliar with what we might think is sleeplessness. In the night, that's when my heart's instructing me. That in the darkness of night and the quiet when everything settles and sort of lands a bit heavier and I can't get over the angst of life, of the situation that's going on, David is familiar with that spot. And it's in that moment when the Lord instructs him that when things grow dark and we grow weary and don't know which way to go, there David says his heart instructs him. He's widened his base. He's ready for the moment. And David talks in verse 8 of this ever-present consciousness of what the Lord is doing. I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. So we find in David this kind of resolve, that the one who blesses me in the night, the one who I'm widening my base and I'm sinking my roots down deep into, this is the Lord who I've set before me. This continual practice, this continual mindfulness that the Lord is ever at work in his life and in ours too. David says the Lord is at his right hand, and therefore he will not be shaken. And the picture here is that the right hand is that with which David is doing. He's accomplishing all that he's accomplishing in life. And that's where the Lord is. In the midst of his doing, there's nothing that's going to come his way that is ultimately going to knock him back or set him down. God's holding him firm. He's at his right hand. And David won't be shaken. The psalm pivots here towards David's glad response. Verses 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. After all this, we see David reflects deeply, consistent, perpetual, deep thought, setting aside distraction and despair, the craziness and busyness of life. David, in this moment, says, in light of all this glorious truth about God, therefore, my heart at the end of the day, it's glad. It's glad. He says, my whole being rejoices. 
My flesh dwells secure at the bottom of it all, peel back the layers, go through the craziness of life, ask the deeper questions, consider the deep, th- deeper thoughts. At the end of it all, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. I'm safe with God. He says God will not ultimately abandon his soul to Sheol nor let his holy ones see corruption. That God is not ultimately going to abandon him. And here's the reality this morning that God will not ultimately, and hear this, he will not ultimately abandon us. If the verse here sounds familiar to you and sort of tipped you off already, it's because we find it in the New Testament. I think I told you maybe Acts 2, but we're going to turn to Acts 13. Flip over to the book of Acts where you left your marker there. Acts 13, and we're going to read verses 34 through 38. This is Paul and Barnabas teaching at Antioch. 34 says this, And as for the fact that they raised him, Jesus, from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Listen to the similarities here. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. But he whom God did raised up did not see corruption. Let it, be known, therefore, to you, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you would not be freed from the law of Moses. A lot to unpack here, but what Paul is unpacking in the teaching here. It's sort of, sort of a point or two. As we're looking at Psalm 16 and considering its meaning, we want to consider it in real time as David is penning it, but we also want to consider it in light of what the rest of Scripture says about it. So as Paul is teaching here, the picture he is painting is that Jesus has come now. He is the Holy One who will not see corruption. David writes in his psalm that God will keep me safe, and what Paul is saying is that that safety for you, believing person, on this side of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, that safety and security, that comfort, that hope that you have, this Holy One is the man Jesus. So Paul's double-tapping on Jesus, saying this is the one in full view. If the psalm was an echo, then Jesus is the song. If the psalm is a shadow and sort of speaking to greater realities, Jesus is the object itself. And so we find here in this great Psalm 16, this grand opportunity, not only to consider God in all of his beauty and all of his glory, but to look at God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we realize that in Jesus, he is our hope, that Jesus came to do the very thing that the law could not, that we could not do ourselves. The good news of Jesus flies in the face of all the self-help, all the get-your-act-together to gospels we hear in our day. It reminds us again and again and again that no matter how much effort we put forth, no matter how much we ourselves attempt to do in our life, that it can't be done. We cannot save ourselves. That Jesus came to do this work. This is the essence of the gospel, of grace that's so needed in our day. 
in a day when we're often tempted to try and help ourselves, that we're told God only helps those who help themselves, this is the message that we have before us, that in His grace and mercy, Jesus has come, and He is actually the help that we need. So when we speak of God sustaining and securing and being safety and sovereignly guided, we don't speak of God abstractly. We look at Jesus and say, this is the one in whom our hope is found, that safety comes from belief in Him. So Paul employs this verse here in Acts 13 using Psalm 16 to get to this basis and framework of our lives lived in light of the gospel truth for us. And we see here that David closes out the psalm with verse 11. Perhaps a verse you've come across at one point or another in your Bible reading or in a setting like this one, and it reads, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. So after all that David has amassed in this psalm, pouring out his heart to God, reflecting upon the deep things of God, centering his mind and his heart on the safety, the security, the sovereign guidance of God, David ends here that God is his ultimate satisfaction. There is nowhere else he can run or go in life that God is the one who satisfies, that God is the one who has made the path ahead straight. He's the one in whose presence there's fullness of joy, no lack of joy. And at his strong right hand, there is pleasures forevermore that David and we need not go elsewhere for the satisfaction that we truly need. We are people collectively, me being from living life in a completely different context sometimes than you are and us going throughout different things even than the person next to us from day to day. And yet we have this commonality among us sitting here this morning that we come before Psalm 16 as a people who are weak and needy. Our attention spans, as we spoke from the jump, are short. Our capacity for joy is small. Our desire for pleasure, C.S. Lewis would remind us, is weak. So we settle for lesser things. Instead of contemplating the bigger questions of life, the deep things of God, we tend to nibble at whatever morsel or whatever crumb is is kind of curated for us throughout our day-to-day lives. Instead of pursuing joy found in God, deep, resounding, everlasting joy, we spend ourselves, our time, our money on the latest trinket or experience. We grasp at happiness through things that will not fulfill us. We're addicted to temporary comfort, fleeting pleasure. We settle for what seems for the moment to be best. And yet true abiding pleasure is found in the presence of God. True abiding pleasure is found in the presence of God. So what are we after here this morning? And I'll pray to close with us. What are we after? My aim this morning in coming to you, a church we love as a church, and spending time with you is that if there is an ember within you, a flicker of light, evidence of heat, a spark, even a small part of you that's warmed to the truth and to the love of God and to the message of the gospel, then God helping me in these short moments we got to share together, I want to blow over that. And fan that into flame. Oh, that Psalm 16 would ignite that spark that causes you and me to prize God above all else in our lives. And we would spend our days in the workplace, whether it's in marketing or writing or teaching or closing the deal or making a pitch, spending time on the phone or writing code or shipping the product 
organizing spreadsheets or restocking shelves, answering phone calls, chasing inbox zero, balancing P&Ls, analyzing lab results, processing patient information, lecturing, teaching, that we would do all of that to the glory of God. That we would spend our days at home and in our neighborhoods here in Waltham, loving our spouses and our children and our close friends and roommates, that we consider the needs of our roommates above our own, that we prepare and serve meals for others in our neighborhood, that we steward our resources and help our neighbors with daily tasks, that we care for our property, that we do all of this to the glory of God. And then that we'd spend our days as members of Christ's church here at Seven Mile Road, singing and praying together, hearing the Word of God preached, encouraging one another as we go in laughter and in hardship, in this room as we worship, in just a few moments over coffee and chatter, around the dinner table and at brunch with those we don't know well after service, in living rooms when groups meet for discussion and that ebbs on just a tad too late, at coffee with a dear brother or sister with whom we can share our deepest struggles and tendencies towards sin, and in fellowship with people whom we might not have anything else in common except this, that we love the Lord Jesus, that we do all of this to the glory of God, all of it to the glory of our great God who has marked out the very boundaries of our existence. Hear this today, brother, sister. God has you where you are in this season you're in, the place that you're in with the struggles you have, the victories you experience, the people you're around, and he's not far from you, that you can trust him and he knows exactly what he's doing. This morning as I pray, I want to urge you, particularly in the room, if you're not a believer today and you're just sort of tiptoeing around the conversation about Jesus, I want to urge you to find time, even this week, to reach out to someone who you may know, someone here at the church, and ask those questions that you have about Jesus. Engage in a dialogue, a welcome conversation about what this all means. And for the believer in the room, let's let Psalm 16 spur us on to look at Jesus who sits at its center who sustains us, secures us, who sovereignly guides us, and Jesus who is our great satisfaction.